Hello, I'm Bernard Nomberg with the Nomberg Law Firm in Birmingham, Alabama. Each month we host Work Comp Today. It is our YouTube live show where David and I, as well as a fellow practitioner guest, discuss the month's news involving independent contractors, employers, and employees. This month's guest is Indiana attorney George Patrick. We talk about several different things, some, some ongoing issues that have been dealing with during the pandemic, as well as some new things. We think you'll find this episode to be quite entertaining and informative. Thank you for subscribing and watching and listening to Work Comp Today. If you like this episode of Work Comp Today and want to hear future episodes, please consider subscribing to our channel. We put these episodes out each month, about a week to 10 days after they're live on YouTube. Also, it would really help us out if you would consider giving us a five-star review and rating, and we would sure appreciate it. Thank you again for tuning in to Work Comp Today. Right. Good afternoon, everybody. It's Bernard Nomberg and David Nomberg with our monthly YouTube live show, Work Comp Today. It is during this hour or so we talk about each month newsworthy items that make it come across our desk or across our screens dealing with independent contractors, employers, and employees. Dave, how are you doing today? You're looking particularly happy to be here and being a lawyer. Just every day. Every day. Doing great. Thanks for asking. Uh, my kids are almost done with finals, so almost done with school, so I'm going to be a lot happier in about four days. I bet you are. And our guest today is a former, uh, excuse me, a fellow WILG member, George Patrick out of Indiana. George, thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate you making some time. And we need to apologize ahead of time for any brother-to-brother -brother banter that you may get caught up in the middle of. So welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate you guys uh, inviting me. Most welcome, most welcome. George, if you would, before we jump into this month's articles and, and topics and things that we're gonna talk about, share a little bit of, tell the folks about your firm and your practice, and then we will get started. Uh, my name's George Patrick. I'm a workers' compensation attorney here in the state of Indiana. I have handled, uh, workers' compensation claims since 1992. It's become exclusively uh, what I've done. Uh, and I had the good fortune of uh, starting out with, uh, with uh, Jim Schreiner, who they nicknamed the Velvet Hammer. And um, uh, Mr. Schreiner uh, uh, was gracious enough to always make from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. available to ask any question. Um, the state of Indiana's workers' comp system has six judges for the entire state and a chairperson. And so you get to know your judges very, very well. Um, that although they're part-time judges, uh, they're very available and they work all the time and they have regular schedules. Um, unfortunately, uh, my law partner of, uh, little more than 20 years. Jeff Sturm passed away earlier this year. That was a uh, 
has been, is, and uh, a terrible loss to all of us, as well as the legal community. Um, his humor and, and uh, manner of handling workers' comp claims, uh, as well as serving as a mediator for workers' comp claims is uh, notably missed. I uh, miss his uh, German steadiness that he always uh, that he always portrayed and and, and carried with. Um, I'm fortunate that uh, another young man, Dan Corbin, um, has uh, joined up with us. And uh, uh, as he reminds me, 40 years old is uh, is still a young man. So I call him I, I call him still a young man. Um, and we focus on doing workers' compensation claims, helping injured employees here in the state of Indiana. And so we, uh, we, we focus our uh, time and efforts before the workers' comp judges uh, helping injured employees. Well, we, we certainly are wish our condolences and thoughts and prayers to you and, and everyone with the firm and the family uh, for the loss earlier this year of your, your partner. I know he's sorely missed, but not forgotten. But we also want to thank you, George, for being here with us today. And we're gonna we're gonna jump into our our cases and stuff, some good stuff we've got to talk about today. And one of the things, the first article that we're gonna hit is talking about chiropractic care. And Dave, I want to ask you before we get into this article, I want to talk about how Alabama law, how Alabama practitioners, how do we deal? with chiropractic care in, in general in work comp claims? Well, really for Alabama, we don't see chiropractic care much at all. Uh, Alabama is what's known as an employer-directed uh, state. And what that means is the employer or the work comp carrier, they are in control of the medical aspects of the claim. They designate the initial treating physician. Um, they approve and authorize uh, medication, treatment, and diagnostics. Um, but in Alabama, we don't see chiropractors pop into too many work comp cases. Uh, kind of, uh, but what we do see a lot of is, is doctors uh, sending injured workers to physical therapists. So we do, there's a lot of physical therapy done uh, in Alabama for work comp claims. George, what about in, in Indiana? You see a lot of chiropractic care in your practice? We do, we do not. There are uh, some of the larger orthopedic groups um, a number of years ago had chiropractic um, practitioners as part of their on-staff crew. Um, in the workers' comp world, that has kind of faded away. Uh, they don't show up very often. Sometimes, uh, uh, the surgeons try to use that as a last ditch effort uh, to try to avoid um, particularly low back surgery. And, um, but we don't very, I, I was surprised to, to see the suggestion. Um, I know from a, uh, uh, from a friend that at the federal level in the federal workers' compensation system, chiropractic care is, is recognized and, and provided. But as a practical matter, um, I, I agree with David, it's much more 
common for us to see, uh, you know, four to six months of relatively intense physical therapy uh, before the before any surgery or uh, in the alternative of uh, chiropractic yeah. type care. Well, our first article, guys, is entitled "Chiropractic Care Can Lead to Lower Comp Costs," and it's interesting that both of our respective states don't see a lot of comp in it, but, and again, these are more progressive states that are part of this study that are here, but California, Minnesota, New York, Wisconsin, and let's see, uh, yeah. states. In the those world. states, what those states you just named, California, Minnesota, New York, Wisconsin, they allow the injured worker to choose their medical providers, <laughs> thus there's more chiropractic treatment in those states versus Alabama, Arkansas, North Carolina, South Carolina, they don't allow the worker to choose the provider. You know, you would think looking at that analysis, the big insurance companies would say something along the lines, hey, here's some money saving, potentially here's money saving. But I think it, the bigger issue is the fact that in those states that you just listed, the California, Minnesota, et cetera, when they get to choose their own doctors, as opposed to the doctors being dictated to the injured workers, probably in most states. Uh, George, in, in Indiana, does the injured worker have a say-so in who they can go to for work comp to pay for it? Uh, absolutely none. And that's in direct uh, contravention. I usually say that there's no greater contrast of two workers' compensation systems uh, that are next door to each other than Indiana and Illinois. Mm -hmm. um, and what, you, what we've heard from the large self-insured employers is in Illinois, their medical costs are not much more than the state of Indiana's. Um, and Illinois is a full employee choice. Uh, and so uh, uh, I know chiropractic care in the Illinois workers' compensation system um, is not unheard of, but as a practical matter, um, I'll be curious as to, as to they continue to crunch computers. And, uh, you know, as David said, you think that the cost of a chiropractor versus the cost of a physical therapist, um, you know, from, from our world here in Indiana, everything circles around the medical fee statute. And so perhaps it's the, the fact that the chiropractors can't get themselves, I haven't looked at it from that point of view, into the medical fee statute. Yeah. I'm sure the folks who run the physical therapy world in our respective states do not want chiropractic care to jump in there as well. That's for sure. But with a lot of medical care changing these days and with the ever skyrocketing costs of all kinds of medical care, it would not surprise me if more states did go to chiropractic care as an alternative. But let's put that one to bed, fellas. Let's move on to the next one. And this, this title is not going to shock any person watching this video. Claims frequency up for 2021, but work comp <laughs> profitability unprecedented. Unprecedented. You know, George, we've always heard 
and this is what we share with our clients, those insurance companies have really, really big buildings. And there's a reason why those buildings are so big. <laughs> it's to house all their money. This was interesting. Dave, what did you take, if anything, out of this one that uh, is worth commenting yeah. on other than the obvious? <laughs> yeah. well, claims went up in 2021, obviously, because claims were down in 2020 because more people were working from home, they were uh, laid off, less people working in 2020. So you expected an uptick in 2021, which happened. And, you know, the article goes on to just talk about that, that being that workers compensation, having that insurance line is very profitable. Um, we've heard that for, for years and years. Um, so no, no shock there. One, one thing the article did talk about was uh, was COVID claims. You know, COVID claims rose in 2021, but uh, as the article says, they averaged about less than $1,500 in payout. So again, co people that were exposed to COVID for the most part missed a little bit of work and went back to work. There's very few, uh, fortunately, very few that died of COVID in the work setting or long haulers, but uh, sadly, those people, there are a lot of people that did lose their job uh, or lost their lives because of COVID. But, but for the most, most COVID claims are smaller indemnity claims, less than $2,000. George, I, I can't think of any work comp claim outside of COVID that averages less than $2,000 a claim. A trip to the emergency room is going to be $10,000, regardless of what it is. Maybe that's the equivalent. The $1,500 is the equivalent of going to a dock in the box, maybe a quick x-ray or two, and maybe you just have a sprained arm or something. But can you think of any claims? And I don't mean to follow this rabbit trail, but it just shows you how the average COVID-related claim is, is not that much money on average. I would agree with you on the Absolutely. Uh see once you study you know there were there was all sorts of concern that covid claims were were, were going to bankrupt companies and and how 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 you know how many claims there would be in a, on the big picture i agree with you that uh your your slip and fall in a hallway or uh something it costs far more in the long run than than this claim of of covid you know as, as we got into the first quarter of, of the pandemic, March, April, May of 2020, all the talk was was how the COVID-related comp claims were going to crush the comp industry. They were going to just obliterate. There'd be no insurance. Premiums will go out. Clearly, that has not panned out in the last two-plus years at all, at all. But, and... George, Dave, and I tend to get on soapbox about various items and issues here because we can. So if there's anything that really, yeah. you, let's have and, at it. And if you remember, in a number, uh, a number of the states changed or debated how they would change their uh, the wording of some of their statutes for presumption for certain classes of employees catching COVID. And as you said. It, you know, great that they, you know, were looking out for their frontline workers and their law enforcement folks and such, that they made it a presumption that 
if those folks um, uh, contracted COVID, that the uh, presumption would be that it had to be uh, work-related. But as you said, those did, thank goodness, um, those sure didn't become all that they claimed it would be. Dave, what kind of presumptions and protections do our Alabama hardworking folks have when it comes to COVID? Yeah, that's a good one. None. Zero. It uh, has to be, has to be proven. No presumptions. Yeah, we have we, we have no protections, no presumptions, nothing. But we love our hardworking men and women of the state of Alabama. Our, our politicians say we have the best workforce in the country, but they damn sure did not protect them, increase their protections at all as a result of uh, when COVID came about. Uh, I just want to say one other thing about this article, uh, make sure this point comes across clearly. The experts say that with the work comp industry, work comp insurance industry is flourishing. Workers' compensation continues to be the most profitable line of insurance. George, any uh, protections for Indiana workers? Any presumptions? Anything uh, asked? No, the, the discussion was, was had, um, and much like you said, the uh, chairman of the workers' comp board was very involved. She listened. Um, and when, when all was said and done, from her point of view, she indicated that, uh, you know, she found slash thought um, that, that something really needed to, to be revisited, she would. And as a practical matter, um, it really just uh, kind of has fizzled out here in uh, uh, Indiana in terms of being a uh, uh, much of a topic. Yeah, it, um, all it was was a lot of discussion um, that just never really went anywhere to, to help. Well, our businesses got more protections from COVID, but not not injured, not not working men and women. Well, guys, let's move on to the third article. I wish we had Anne Marie Pantazis with us for this article, Dave. Weight loss surgery covered by work comp, North Carolina appeals court finds. And the reason why I bring her up is because she practices in North Carolina and for no other reason. But this is an interesting one. George, did you, did you get a chance to either listen to the article or, or dive into it? I did. And, and um, rarely can I say that Indiana uh, was a forefront or a leader um, in a positive note, but uh, this issue uh, came up in 2000 and made its way into our court of appeals in 2009. And so we had a young man, he was 25 years old at the time. Uh, he weighed just uh, under 350 pounds, uh, was struck uh, in the low back by a freezer door at work. Uh, he worked for uh, uh, Boston Pizza and so much as in this case uh, that's reported here, the workers' compensation insurance company, despite the fact that the, the, the proven fact he put on 50 pounds, um, uh, 
uh, after the date of the uh, of the accident, um, all of the physicians who examined him, all of the low back physicians who examined him, indicated that any surgery, any low back surgery, would be you would be meaningless unless they could strip off a hundred pounds at least. And they all said he can't have this surgery until that's done. And uh, first our court of appeals and then our Supreme court affirmed the work comp judges finding um, on a stack of medical records um, that all indicated uh, weight loss, uh, bar bariatric surgery was going to be required and should be paid for by the workers' compensation insurance company. So it's the only time we ever, yeah. we ever, so I'm glad to see other people have followed. It's a, it's a terrible problem. Um, yeah. I can't get it. I, I have tried to follow this in Indiana. Um, our workers' comp judges have been reluctant to say that if you are, um, overweight um, when you're injured, they're, they're, they, they haven't 100% lined up behind this decision to say, absolutely, we're gonna order um, weight loss. Um, they'll order, if you're a smoker, they'll order smoking cessation, they'll order a number of things, but um, uh, I, in the right circumstances, I think we could get it followed, but it's 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 not an automatic. If you were 350 pounds on the day of the accident and you're 350 yeah. pounds at the time of surgery. David, have we, are you familiar, would this be a case of first impression in Alabama? I'm not familiar with, with this fact pattern in, in, uh, in our state. I, I'm, not, I'm not either. I don't believe we've had a weight loss surgery reported case. Um, Oh, I'm no. sure it's been an issue in many cases. I've just never seen one reported. Yeah. Well, it says, I mean, this is interesting. By connecting the dots, we can conclude that but for the plaintiff's need to have the right knee surgery to treat her compensable injury, she would not have needed to undergo bariatric surgery, said the, the writing, the, the authoring judge. Therefore, while the existence of plaintiff's weight problem was not directly related to the accident, the need for the bariatric surgery is directly related. Interesting. I'm wondering how our, uh, how our courts would treat that, but maybe that'll be something we come across. Who knows? I, I, I think our workers comp judges continue to say you have to show uh, from the date of injury to the, to the date of surgery, you have to show um, that change seems to be part of what is a required step here. All right, let's put that cork in that one. Before we move on to our fourth article, I want to welcome anybody who's watching us now or may catch us later on. We've got Dennis Mosley says, what's going on, fellas? Hey, Dennis, thank you for joining us. We've got George Patrick out of Indiana, a fellow WILG member. We are talking about this month's articles and newsworthy things going on that deal with independent contractors employers and employees. And this next topic, this article, the coming and going rule is one that we deal with all the time, every time, every case, all the time. I think I already said that twice. Rhode Island High Court revisits exception to 
to workers' comp going and coming rule. Dave, I'm going to put you on the spot. Briefly describe in Alabama, what is the coming and going rule in general? Yeah, if you are on your way to work uh, or going home after work and you're involved in an accident, that is usually not going to be covered by your employer's workers' compensation. Okay, so if you're on your way to work, going home, it's usually not covered by work comp. Um, and here, uh, and there, there, of course, there's exceptions to that, you know, and you've got a you know, company car, you're being reimbursed mileage, uh, you're doing something in furtherance of the company's business. There's, that could be covered under work comp. George, any uh, different in interpretation in Indiana, the way they treat it? Um, much, much like the, the same, we have uh, some cases that involve the parking issue and somewhat like uh, this case, it doesn't always hinge on whether or not the employer uh, owns the uh, parking lot that the employee is utilizing. Um, you know, when the employer's parking lot is full and they're parking in the public lot directly across the street or, um, you know, it would be an easy one. Um, the, the, the Indiana case uh, involved the hospital who leased a parking lot and the employee was struck in the crosswalk crossing the street um, by a driver who did not have insurance. Um, and that was a case of first impression in the state of Indiana. Um, and since then, uh, there was one other case where a uh, unfortunately worker was killed, but his claim was denied because he was uh, not in the cry. Although he's crossing the public road between the parking lots, he basically was, was jaywalking and um, uh, the Court of Appeals would not grant him or grant his family uh, workers' comp benefits. They they held the position that had he been in the crosswalk, that would have been a different discussion. Um, but we have the same we have the same opinions about if you're driving your private car and you're not getting paid mileage and um, yeah, the coming and going just doesn't apply. You know, we we get cases almost weekly where we have to interpret how Alabama cases deal with our, our facts. George, I've got one right now where a young lady was working for a fast food restaurant in one city. The owner of the restaurant said, I need you to go to the next city where our other store is because people have quit or they didn't show up. So I need you working there. And she was on the clock that day and gets into a bad car accident. It's about a hundred mile drive between one and the other. The owner of the business says, this isn't covered under work comp because you weren't in the building when you got hurt. So as you can imagine, we're going to be filing that lawsuit pretty soon. But that's just one of hundreds, if not thousands of scenarios that I'm sure the three of us collectively have looked at over the years. Seems a little short-sighted, short doesn't it? It, it, it <clears throat> I had a, an employee, gas station employee clock out and she was between the gas pump 
and the employer's um, building hadn't gotten to her vehicle and was was uh, struck uh, by a negligent driver and um, originally her employer same position uh, took the position you clocked out um, even though he, clearly uh, still on his real estate still between the gas pump and the building um, and the and the workers comp judge uh, took uh, that was dispatched very quickly on that on that particular instance yeah. I don't know if there's really anything of, of uniqueness about this particular Rhode Island case other than they just revisited it from the 1968. Well, I, I think what the employer was arguing here was that they didn't own the parking lot. That was what that was what their the hook was, if you will. It, yeah. it seemed kind of a, a weak argument to me. They're saying, well, we don't own the parking lot, so therefore we're not responsible. Uh, this shouldn't be under work comp. I, but the court ruled that that was still where the, the parking lot was, even though they le the employer leased the parking lot, that was still where they directed their employees to park. Yeah, so it, didn't it have, was, yeah. It's like, it, yeah. It, it could be separate from the facility itself. That's right. So, okay. Yeah. All right, fellas, let's move on to the fifth. Now, Dave, I don't know if you realize we're a little over halfway through this month's show, and we have not mentioned this may be breaking a two and a half year run. We have no cases with Amazon. But you said we, the word anyway. I know we haven't we haven't mentioned Uber, Lyft, the gig economy. Is yeah. this a trend? Are we headed in a different direction, or are we just this is a one off show this month? I think you, we needed a break and you didn't pull any articles involving those. That's right, George. That is so true. Amazon has been in because it's probably one of the largest private employers in the country right now. They they uh, they have their issues. <laughs> All right. Well, and, 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 you know, they've certainly uh, figured out how to multi-layer and uh, how to uh, try to insulate uh, the mothership uh, with all these, with all these, uh, uh, layers of, of contractualness. It, it is, whether it's attempts to unionize in Bessemer, a suburb of Birmingham, or it's robotics dealing with creating injuries when you have humans and robots interacting, there's, there's something going on with Amazon every, every month. But now we're going to talk about OSHA. OSHA cites roofing firm as severe violator of worker safety rules. Now, guys, before we jump into this article, George, do you guys, do you ever deal with OSHA violations in any of your comp cases? Um, we have them, but it, it adds, it, it provides nothing that our workers' compensation judges can use to uh, enhance uh, what the, the, the injured employees' benefits. Um, and so it's observable, um, but, but our judges, it, it doesn't, there's nothing within our state laws that enable them um, to uh, uh, 
to add something more to the either the, the weekly check or to uh, uh, the impairment rating on the end. We suggest eight years ago, um, I suggested a split um, with one of the chief lobbyists of the Chamber of Commerce. Indiana has a statute where we bar compensation to injured employees who the judge finds violated a, safety, a, a true safety rule that's truly enforced. Mm -hmm. And the Chamber of Commerce was bellyaching that they could never win those cases because generally when they came up, the injuries were so horrible that the judges just didn't, wouldn't enforce it. And so I suggested, what if the, there was a 50% reduction to that injured employee um, for the safety rule violation? But on the other hand, if the employer violated the, the, uh, a safety rule with an OSHA violation, that the employer portion had to be increased by, by 50%. Um, and that created an interesting wedge between the, uh, the lobbying groups for a while. Um, and I just couldn't get enough votes uh, on the Indiana Senate side to get any traction there. But that was my attempt to use uh, an OSHA violation to, 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 to change the parameters of the, uh, the affirmative defenses. Yeah, Dave, in, in our cases, sometimes it's, it's a difficult conversation for me with our clients when they know there's been an OSHA investigation to explain to them because we're a no fault statute, that's not gonna help them like George just said in their work comp case, but it might help, might provide some smoke, so to speak, in a potential third party case. And that's, that's a, that's, it's, it's, it's hard enough trying to explain the compact to the injured worker. And then you got to go into that other realm. Do you, do you find that that's kind of a conversation you have to have as well? That's right. And, uh, you know, so many clients think that when they come to us, they'll start talking about the negligence aspect, the liability, they didn't do this. They knew about that, but that still got hurt. And, you know, we just, quickly talk about no fault statute and um, it doesn't enhance the value of the case. We don't have to prove those things. This is not a negligence case. So it doesn't make your case more valuable. No. So um, yeah, same thing with, uh, with, with OSHA, George, it's really not yet yeah, kind of peripheral uh, as far as a work comp case is concerned matters on the third party case, the liability side of things, it can be helpful, but not really and, on the work comp side. And in this article, this Maine, state of Maine roofing and siding company, multiple violations, over half a million dollars in penalties, five, at least five employees exposed to falls of 10 to 18 feet to the ground and pavement. And why is it not shocking to me because we could probably find in in every state multiple offenders like this, but there's not enough OSHA investigators and, and money to do the proper investigations. This one happened to get caught. George, does this mention if anybody died from it or does it does it even mention those what happened to the people who fell? 
No, and it doesn't, nobody, thank goodness nobody, it doesn't say that anybody died. Um, but But I agree with you. I mean, there are a couple telephone calls that I, that I dread um, and it usually starts with, I work for a tree trimming company um, or, I, uh, or I work for a, a roofing company um, because so often those are uh, either uninsured entities, um, they, they simply you know, refuse to carry workers comp and we've tried to make that a, a felony and we've tried to modify I'm going to try one more time to modify the, the statute. Our judge, our, our workers' compensation judges, um, when confronted with it, are quick to indicate to uh, the individual defendants that it's their point of view that their uninsured status pierces the corporate veil. And uh, they don't hesitate to name every officer listed in the secretary of state's documents um, individually and personally. They, they don't give them any corporate protection and they make them all, you know, prove that they couldn't have gotten workers comp or they, any, anything about it, but it's a, those, those are the calls I hate to get. I work for a tree trimming company. Yeah, and we, you know, we have lots of those, Dave, on the west side of our, well, really the southern and western parts of our our state. And George, I bet David and I have handled two or three dozen of those claims, I say handle, looked at, and they so rarely have companies that actually take out comp coverage. And we're going we're gonna to transition away from our articles and what we do in the last bit of our, our monthly conversation is we're gonna compare a little bit about how Alabama comp law policies, procedures, et cetera, operate in comparison to Indiana's laws. And if you're just joining us guys, we have Indiana practitioner, George Patrick with us as our guest. This is our monthly work comp today, or as Dave calls it, work comp for nerds. And most of the views I think each month are gonna be fellow practitioners and we welcome that. We welcome anybody who's gonna put eyeballs in addition to our mother on this show. She probably knows as much about comp as any practitioner in the state at this point. And I wanna talk about George, when benefits of an injured worker in Indiana are cut off or stopped, does there have to be some type of notification by the carrier or by the employer to the injured worker, and Dave's gonna start chuckling in a minute when I talk about Alabama, what type of notice, what do they have to do? Is there statutory or administrative requirements along those lines? Short answer, yes. We were fortunate that our workers' compensation board um, created a specific form um, that is mandatorily required in our Supreme Court uh, and Court of Appeals have uh, backed up and affirmed uh, that shall means shall um, and that the failure to send that notice 
um, means that the workers' compensation insurance company is financially responsible to continue to pay weekly benefits until they can prove that the injured employees served with that notice. And so as a result, um, they, it, that provides some, some battleground. Now, once you're served with that notice, our, uh, uh, it's not required to stop medical. It's only required when you stop temporary total disability benefits. Um, our statute provides the injured employee an opportunity free of charge to challenge the treating doctor's return to work capacity. David, George is speaking such a foreign language to the way Alabama yeah. <laughs> works. You want to interpret yeah. what you've just heard and how yeah. our beautiful state statutes don't do that? <laughs> George, as soon as the, in 99% of the cases, as soon as the uh, claims adjuster receives the medical note from the doctor that says maximum medical improvement, stop, TTD is stop. They don't send a letter to the claimant. Oh. They don't notify us. Rarely, rarely we get notified. Now, they are supposed to file what's called a supplemental claims form, which, which, which lists the cessation of, of TTD benefits, but hardly ever done. Hardly ever and that, done. So and that as a result, goes to the Department of Labor. Not to us, not to the injured yeah. worker. Yeah. It just goes to the Department of Labor and it's an administrative page. Yeah. So what happens is, George, client, you know, we start, we try to prepare the client for saying, hey, it looks like you're coming up on MMI. It sounds like you're getting close. And as soon as you reach MMI, the TTD benefit is stopped. But then you don't know because we don't get the medical records immediately. So then when the client's like, well, I usually get my check on Monday or I usually get direct deposit on Friday and now I haven't gotten it. So then we have to start contacting the adjuster. Hey, can you give us an update on the TTD check? What's going on? Is the client claimant at MMI? And you're trying to get met, trying to get that medical record so you can show the client in writing that they're at MMI. So yeah, that's my experience. <laughs> Sadly, that's the experience of most practitioners in Alabama dealing with that and it, it just adds more stress yeah. to our clients when they're not fully prepared. So we got does, two more. Does the employer uh, call your client and say come back to work or? Typically, Depends. George, typically if, if, if the treating physician, the authorized treat, ATP, authorized treating physician, creates a work status form regardless if it's off work completely or if it's just temporary different restrictions or if it's the permanent ones. We get a copy of that. We talk with our clients. We tell them they, if they're still employed, they have to turn that in and have a conversation with the employer. The employer does not have to create a job at all to accommodate. If it fits their business model and they can put the employee back, they will, hopefully unless burnt bridges have been burned. But this is all part of the hand-holding process that we have to go through every time. Anyway, let's move on to the next one. Let's talk about 
employers, workers' compensation coverage, elections to have that coverage, exemptions when they don't have to have coverage. George and Alabama, you got to have five employees to be under the mandate of the work comp laws. You have less than that. You have a court. I think, it, David, is it a quarterly reporting obligation or is it semi? I can't remember how often it is, but you have lots of small companies, George, that will skirt that line when it comes to, and it's based on the premiums are based on payroll. So you have a lot of these, like we were talking about tree trimming companies, logging companies. A lot of these folks, they won't have that because they don't want to pay for those premiums. Dave, off the top of your head, can you think of any other industries? Is it maybe in dairy or, I mean, excuse me, in farming that you don't yeah. have to have it? There's a few other industries. Yeah, that don't have to domestic have servants, mm -hmm. uh, farming or ag, uh, they're not required to have comp coverage. Uh, but if you've got five or more employees, then you are required to have comp coverage. If you have less than five, then, then you can opt in to have comp coverage. And then Dave, what about the scenario where you're a, a self-employed person? Is that window closed now or is it still open where you the, can take No, no. You, if you're a solo, if you're you know, a solo uh, business owner, you, you can still have work comp insurance you can have in work hop insurance on yourself because i want to say state farm was one of the companies that offered it maybe among others george what about in indiana do employers have an option to opt in or opt out or can what tell us a little bit about how that works well in in, in indiana we don't have that that five person uh qualifier um if you have an employee theoretically even yourself um, your, uh, our statute requires you to, to carry workers' compensation. Um, we had to catch up and amend our uh, inclusions and exclusions when the new corporate uh, formation started to come along with the LLPs and LLCs, and, and suddenly we had to our workers' comp statute hadn't um, contemplated in any way, shape, or form what we're going to do with those folks. Um, and so, as a result, um, most of the most of the corporate officers and such, um, or I should say, the, the the members and the managers of the LLCs and LLPs um, had to opt in to get in and and. Eventually, we got them in if you wanted to be in. Um, we have some, some tough civil court decisions upholding um, group health insurance companies' refusals to pay medical bills where the group health insurance folks were contending that their injured insured had the ability or the choice to seek workers' compensation insurance coverage and did not, um, but that the group health people should uh, be released from any obligation to pay the medical bills. And uh, it started in a, in a terrible case with uh, uh, a school bus driver who had drove a school bus to get school insurance and then chose and then had a second business 
where he was an agricultural farmer. Um, and he himself had not opted in for workers' comp coverage, but he had employees who had workers' comp. Mm -hmm. And the, the health insurance people, when they were looking at better than half a million dollars worth of bills, went to court uh, and were successful. And so I have used that repeatedly to, to say to small business people, look, if for no other reason than for health coverage, opt into workers' comp and um, you'll be accepted. And so uh, they're allowed to do that and that's what they do. But as you said, our workers' comp um, coverages are, are, uh, are factored on um, payroll. And so, uh, you know, there, from time to time, there's, 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 there's games on payroll. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, we have, for a while, we had a, a fairly active investigation into misclassified employees. Um, and then that kind of, that, that has slowed down somewhat. Uh, yeah, but yeah, that brings the Uber and the Lyft and. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Um, we allow you in the state of Indiana, if you really think you're a, an independent contractor um, and you want to declare yourself to be an independent contractor, we have a form and you have to file it in Indianapolis. And I think there's a $5 fee or $10 fee. And so many times um, more unscrupulous employers have their employees file that form and then they contend that they're a, you know, really an independent contractor. And a number of times our judges will uh, take that defense away. Uh, yeah, we and we could spend all day talking about the right of control issue when it comes to independent contractors versus employees. But we only have a couple more minutes. We got one last topic and it's an interesting one. Again, work comp for nerds, practitioners here talking, staffing agencies. George, we have a lot of automotive manufacturing plants around the state. We have Honda, Hyundai, Mercedes are the three bigs. Then with all of those have all the companies that contract with them. But even more so than that, we have tons and tons of temp staffing agencies that supply the labor to these companies. And eventually they start out as independent, I mean, excuse me, working for the staff companies, but then a lot of times they have the opportunity to come on board with Mercedes, Honda, Hyundai, whatever. Dave, I'm going to start with you. And I want to talk about that relationship. Where do you find the coverage, that relationship typically between Mercedes and Elwood Staffing or you pick a staffing company? Yeah. So the cover, the work comp coverage is usually with the staffing company. And you do see a lot of them, and it seems to be it, it seemed to have exploded in the last 10, 12 years in Alabama. I guess that's in line with the ad addition of these uh, car manufacturers, mm -hmm. and and I, it it must be very profitable uh, for these businesses to use the staffing companies yeah. um, because you do see a lot of them and. Uh, just seems like a bad situation for so many of these employees. Um, nope. And and we rarely get to see the actual contract. George, sometimes if we have to file a suit, 
we'll name the special employer and the general employer, both Honda and the staffing company, because sometimes we don't know the relationship enough. And until we get to see that actual clause in the contract that says who's going to provide the coverage, we have to sue them both and make them show us who has that coverage. Do you have scenarios like that in Indiana where you see that situation with staffing companies? Do you all have those? Well, we, we have plenty of staffing companies, as you said, and, and um, you know, the Subaru uh, facility, the, the Toyota facility, mm-hmm. um, just like you said, they, they, they like to use those. However, um, they, they tend to be, the staffing agency tends to be right up front on controlling um, uh, and extending uh, workers' compensation benefits. They don't, uh, uh, I, I think they value their relationship enough with uh, the, the manufacturer to ensure that they're, they're right out on front. Um, so I haven't had a, a, a tremendous number of um, staffing companies either um, not have workers' comp coverage or um, uh, not direct, you know, that my, my, the bane of my existence is the occupational health clinics and nurse practitioners. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and you know, I, I get so frustrated uh, those are the, those are so heavily utilized, and so the, as you said, the, these poor workers are are told, well, you know, I went to the clinic and they told me to go back to work, and and so some a lot of times the staffing agencies instead of saying going back to the facility, you come to the the, the home staffing office and we'll have you sit and listen to an, a radio for six seven hours a day or or shredding, something shredding paper. Sitting at a desk shredding paper. Here's a scenario that that we have we struggle with. In Alabama Workers Comp Act, we have a a separate statute within it called anti-retaliatory discharge. You can't be fired for the sole purpose of the termination is in retaliation for you maintaining a claim. And in this scenario where you have a temp or staffing agency employee working at one of these automotive automotive uh, companies where somebody from Mercedes says to the temp worker, don't come back here. You're fired. You've done something X, whatever, make it up. Is that Dave retaliatory discharge or does it become retaliatory discharge if the temp agency takes them off of the Mercedes plant and shifts them to now work at the nonprofit center as a cashier. It becomes, George, it's very factually specific. And it in our at-will employment state probably allows the staffing yeah. company to skirt by and not be yeah. liable for anti-retaliation. The, the big company that they're assigned to is protected th- through the staffing agency because uh, it has to be the employer that's firing them. So that's, that's, uh, that's it's, again, it's a benefit to the employer 
for the major company they're assigned to, they get the protection. So George, you want to come to Alabama and practice law with us? It won't hurt wow. our feelings. If you wow, that's uh, you know I, it, um, you know our I often say, you know the the Indiana workers' compensation judges are uh, the balancing point of our system, and and they're what uh, they're they're what keeps um, the the workers' comp system turning, spinning, and and in balance. Uh, but yeah, you. you you have your work cut out for you with with uh, with that one. Yeoman's work, my friend. Yeoman's work. Yes. Love it. Our dad did it for 50 years. Dave and I have been doing it a long time. We want to thank you, George, for spending almost an hour with us on our monthly YouTube Work Comp Today show. We really enjoyed your, your input and your expertise coming out of Indiana. Thank you. I appreciate it. Have a wonderful evening. Dave, before we sign off, you know I like to give you the final words of wisdom. Send us off with something just we can take into the evening and really appreciate what time we've had today. Um, Nick Saban won the argument over Jimbo Fisher. Jimbo Fisher's an idiot. Is that, is that, was that on point? That, that's on point, but you're not going to be happy to see that the pit receiver committed to USC today. But, uh, that's okay. George, <laughs> we don't talk about barbecue or college football. It hadn't been a total show. So now it's been a total show for us. Perfect. Good Super. to see you, my friend. We will Thank catch you. you guys. Thank you for who watched this live or watch us on YouTube later. We will catch you guys again.